The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit for participation in this activity or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas, AstraZeneca, Lanthius Medical Imaging, Merck, and Pfizer Incorporated. Good afternoon, my name is Jay Raman and I am professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. Uh, it's my pleasure to host another one of our podcast series in the AUA Expert Exchange podcast, Discussions in Genital Urinary Cancers. Today's show is specifically titled The Identification and Management of Comorbid Condition Conditions in the Patient with Advanced Prostate Cancer. And it's really my pleasure uh, to have three um, outstanding guests on our program today, uh, Dr. Ted Scalaris, Dr. Megan Karam, and Dr. Archana Radhakrishnan. Um, let me just briefly introduce each of them, just so you have a sense of our different speakers. Uh, Dr. Scalaris is a urologist. He's an associate professor of urology at the University of Michigan and uh, is also quite involved uh, in the, uh, the VA uh, Health Services Research Center uh, at the uh, VA in Ann Arbor, uh, Michigan. Uh, Dr. Karam is uh, assistant professor of medical oncology, also from the University of Michigan, and similarly is in the VA Health Services Research Center uh, at the VA in Ann Arbor. And Dr. Radha Christian is an assistant professor in the internal medicine uh, department at the University of Michigan. So uh, first of all, uh, Megan, uh, Ted, Archana, really thank you so much for, for taking some time today. Really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. So I think maybe we'll, we'll just start perhaps um, from each of your different perspectives at maybe the 20,000 foot view, which is um, that if we we're talking about advanced prostate cancer, and, and obviously when we think about advanced prostate cancer, we're, we're thinking a little bit about you know, patient comorbidities and what considerations we have. And I'm sure each of you, based on your specialties, look at this from a slightly different lens. And so I think that would be a really helpful way to maybe start off this, which is maybe uh, we start with Ted or in any particular order. Um, how do you sort of think about these patients? And let's maybe hear everyone's perspective. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for, for hosting this and for having uh, me on. So, you know, some of the things I think about uh, for men presenting uh, who are managing with advanced prostate cancer, one thing I typically do is check the um, uh, NCCN older adult oncology life estimation, um, life expectancy table. So really get a sense of where we are in kind of the longitudinal disease and their other chronic diseases in terms of how long are they gonna be dealing with uh, this advanced uh, disease state. Second is uh, really measuring and understanding urinary function, bowel function, sexual function. And then third is, um, 
working to manage the long-term and late effects of, of the disease. It's treatment, it's, it's uh, recurrent. So whether that's obstructive uropathy from strictures or locally advanced disease, recurrent hematuria, things like that, dysuria. And then, you know, more broadly, and again, with the life expectancy, you know, where, what other comorbidities do they have in terms of cardiovascular disease and, and their functional status? May, uh, Dr. Karam? Yeah, um, yeah, I agree with that. I think from my perspective as a medical oncologist, um, you know, first and foremost, um, you know, started off as internist, but I think it's important to keep in mind that men with advanced prostate cancer tend to be older. These are men in their late 60s, early 70s um, on average, where the prevalence of comorbid conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, coronary disease are already very high. Um, or higher in this age range and in these older men. So adding in a, we tend to use androgen deprivation therapy, as you know, a lot in advanced prostate cancer. So adding in this lifelong ADT uh, that can further exacerbate these conditions uh, that's already at a high prevalence, I think is super important to keep in mind. Um, and then for those who maybe come in without pre-existing conditions, just knowing that, you know, we can increase their risk of developing these um, issues. And then some other things that we might not always think about with uh, older men, but that can come along with androgen deprivation, like osteoporosis and frailty, sarcopenia, um, depression, things like that, that maybe aren't thought of as often. And I think to wrap it out, um, bringing in the primary care view about this, I think the biggest things that we think about in primary care is to first kind of just take that step back and look at the big picture. So what does this diagnosis of advanced prostate cancer mean with in relation to all the other diseases that the patient may have? So as we've talked about, you know, they are older, so maybe they have actually other cancers, or maybe they're already having end-stage heart failure, for example. So what does this diagnose, diagnosis mean with respect to that? Um, and then I think coming hand in hand with that is thinking about what does this mean for their quality of life? So what is what is what is the impact on their quality of life and how does having the cancer or treating of the cancer impact that and thinking about kind of the risks and benefits of that and then lastly yeah. just thinking about what megan just said which is that oftentimes you know these therapies are going to exacerbate existing kind of cardiovascular diseases which this patient population clearly is going to have so thinking about what is their current state of cardiovascular disease and what would having the disease and having treatment for the disease do for that you know, it's interesting. I, I feel like in different ways, you all sort of touched on almost a, a similar theme, right? I, I think Ted talked a little bit about life expectancy. Megan discussed a little bit about frailty. Um, uh, Archana, you, you sort of discussed this competing risks. And I, and I feel like one of the big challenges is, is when you have a patient with advanced prostate cancer, um, in many cases, you start thinking immediately about therapy, right? You, you know, therapy, treat, and, and the reality is, is that the patient population we're dealing with are not 20 and 30 year olds. Uh, it's, as you all highlighted, a vastly different patient population who have significant other competing causes of morbidity and or mortality. Um, and I feel like each of you, through your, each of your different specialties have sort of hit on, on, on that same theme across the board. So maybe what we'll, we'll maybe transition to is um, you know, the, the, the most common thing that most of us are familiar with is, is androgen deprivation therapy. And, and certainly, um, you know, I, I know in Megan's realm in medical oncology and even in some of the urology practices, we're seeing more and more of these agents. But maybe let's just start with 
you know, the rudimentary androgen deprivation therapy, monotherapy, uh, because I think that's what, at a base, we're almost familiar with in the urologic domain. Maybe for, for each of you, sort of, you know, managing this patient who's on just say, you know, eight, monotherapy ADT. Um, and maybe I'll start with Ted just, just in the, no, for no particular reason other than we'll just go in the sure. same order as what we started with. Sounds great. Thanks, Jay. So, you know, uh, I think this is a really important topic. In, in 2014, I helped uh, lead the American Cancer Society's Prostate Cancer Survivorship Guidelines. These were expert and evidence-based uh, review of care recommendations for men, their partners, and and really the primary care providers caring for these men. And, and the guidelines look across uh, different areas from health promotion, um, surveillance for prostate cancer recurrence, for secondary cancers, uh, really screening and understanding late and long-term effects and management, psychosocial issues, and care coordination. And, and the fact is, is that ADT, chemical castration or hormone therapy impacted the majority of these domains. You know, when, when, like I said, you know, earlier, when, when I see these men, uh, I tend to think about urinary and sexual function uh, uh, assessments, their libido is uh, demonstrably uh, down. They can have psychosocial um, uh, distress. I, I also think about health promotion. I counsel them about stopping smoking and getting exercise and, and then bone health, you know, I'll, I'll let uh, Dr. Karam really dig into the details of bone health. I think if they haven't had a DEXA scan, I can uh, obtain one of those as a baseline and then really recommend, um, uh, you know, uh, under the principles of ADT use, the NCCN guidelines talks about calcium and vitamin D supplementation. So put on thousand milligrams of calcium or, uh, you know, 800 milligrams of uh, vitamin D. Yeah, um, I completely agree with uh, Ted. So for men, I guess when you're talking about monotherapy ADT, I usually, when I'm first starting someone out on treatment for that, um, I talk about kind of, we've got these annoying side effects to worry about, like hot flashes and, you know, body changes and things like that, that they'll experience. But then there's also some more, um, more objective effects that can happen, uh, adverse effects of like osteopenia, osteoporosis and uh, monitoring bone health. So I guess to dig into how we do that. So generally um, we're talking about just, you know, ADT alone is usually for either biochemical recurrent patients, um, you know, or hormone sensitive metastatic patients um, just for those kind of earlier stage in the advanced prostate cancer world. I agree um, what Ted mentioned, we usually do calcium and vitamin D. Um, I think he mentioned that. So generally uh, calcium, uh, about 1200 milligrams a day, vitamin D 800 units um, on average. Uh, so usually we recommend that to everyone on ADT. And then in addition to supplementation, um, everybody that's on ADT really should have bone health monitoring every couple of years. We usually start with a baseline right when we start out um, on their Elegard or Lupron. And then um, every one to two years after that, then you can compare their T-score of their femoral neck to their prior and see if you're losing ground or not. And then to get really, um, you know, really into the weeds, which is not too difficult to do, um, they, there's something called a FRAX score that's recommended by the National Osteoporosis Foundation. It's um, F-R-A-X, and you can just Google it. Um, but basically, if you, you can calculate a FRAX score on patients, it's this nice algorithm 
um, put in people's weight, their height, their T-score on their DEXA, you know, their family history, um, their family history of fractures. And then it basically spits out, uh, you know, their risk score for getting a major osteoporotic fracture. It can help you with if, you, you know, these are the patients that should be on a uh, prophylactic bisphosphonate or not. So something like that's easy enough to do. Um, it should be done, you know, pretty regularly to uh, monitor patients. And then if they do come up as having a super high risk um, for fracture, you can put those patients on a bisphosphonate or, um, or something like Prolia or denosumab um, to, you know, lower their risk of getting a fracture. You know, I guess just to dive a little bit deeper for those more advanced patients that have a castration resistant metastatic disease with bone metastases. Though now it's a little bit of a different story. We're talking about patients who um, we're not as much worried about osteoporosis as we are skeletal related events from their cancer. So when you're worried about osteoporosis, you're putting people on zoledronic acid or denosumab for osteoporosis dosing, which is like once a year, once every six months. Uh, when we're talking about treating patients with the more advanced castration-resistant disease with bone mets, um, those patients were trying to prevent cancer-related skeletal events. And so those patients were giving it much more frequently. Um, they're not really doing DEXAs as much in those patients anymore because you're, I mean, they're already getting denosumab, they're already getting uh, zoledronic acid. Um, so it's a lot about bone health. There's other things to think about, you know, distress monitoring. So NCCN recommends distress screening on um, pretty much every patient with cancer. So that's important uh, for these men on ABT. Um, that way we can refer them to Psychom for their primary care. Um, depression, anxiety is, is, is certainly increasing um, just in the general population, but certainly um, in older men that are on ABT. And then other health maintenance issues as well. I'll um, let Archana talk about Sure. Thank you. Um, so I think one of the biggest things as a PCP is, first of all, make sure their primary care physician knows that they're on ABT. I think this is one of the biggest things that happens and a conversation I've now had with Ted and Megan about it. But um, I think oftentimes there can be this, you know, we all know about kind of the fragmentation in care and this just gets exacerbated, especially if the patient goes out of the kind of the system to get their specialty care, which can oftentimes happen. And sure, you can ask the patient about their own health care, but we know that sometimes that's not the, they're not the best source. Um, and so I think, you know, communication with the primary care provider and making sure that communication exists to make them aware this is what they're on, I think is really important. Um, when I do have patients on ADT, it's, you know, I think the urologist and the medical oncologist oftentimes cover a lot of these things of, uh, the side effects, whether it be bone health or anemia. So I think what I tend to focus on then um, are, you know, the metabolic disorders, right? So looking at what's what what's their cardiovascular risk? So what's their lipids and what's their ASCVD score? Um, do they have diabetes? And if they don't, are they going to develop it? And if they do have it, how well is it controlled? Um, what can I talk to them about the weight gain or obesity? And what are ways to, you know, manage their, um, manage their weight? manage their weight. So I think as primary care, that's what I usually tend to focus on because my colleagues do such a good job of the other things like the bone hemp and the anemia. So Archie and I, and I don't want to throw Ted and Megan under the bus, but, <laughs> but here's my question. I, I, I totally agree. And, and, you know, I do a lot of prostate cancer and I'll be the first to tell you, I probably don't do as good a job as I should as a specialist in communicating back to uh, the primary care provider that, hey, this person's on ADT, they're going to be on it for a long time. Um, do you have a sense of, of 
uh, as specialists, are, are we pretty are we pretty bad at this with, with sort of communicating sort of these key factors that are going to impact everything, including prostate cancer, but and beyond? Are, are, do we need to do a much better job at this as, as sort of a, a specialist community? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think this is a problem that's existed for a really long time and probably is going to continue to exist for a really long time. But I just think communication between primary care and any specialist, so not just throwing urology under the bus, but really any specialty is really hard. Um, and I think what happens is that there's so many things that get lost in the weeds, right? Like, um, and so when we're reading a note, right, all the stuff about stuff that I'm not quite sure I can actually follow the lingo on. And then what doesn't really come out is, this is what really matters to primary care, right? Um, and so I think we're moving towards this in a better way. And sometimes there's things like, you know, um, I have specialists who write like FYI primary care, which is the best thing that anyone can ever do for me. But really that delineates, right? Like this is kind of what you need to know. Um, and this is what I want you to do, right? So I want you to be aware that this patient is now going to need X, Y, and Z. <clears throat> so for example, with ADT, like if you want me to order the CBC, fine, I'm happy to, and I'm happy to look for the anemia, or if you want me to do something, I'm happy to. Um, and then I think also just these, <clears throat> sometimes it's just kind of highlighting, right? Like being on this management means that you're gonna have to kind of deal with these side effects. So FYI, these are kind of these long-term effects to just be aware of. So that if a patient ends up calling me, which happens quite a bit for things that don't necessarily have to do with primary care and have to do with say their cancer, at least I'm not completely unaware of like, oh, this could be a potential side effect from the treatment for the cancer versus thinking like, oh, this is something that I need to completely chase down because um, it's a it, it's completely unrelated and I need to do kind of like the primary care workup for it. So um, yes, I think communication can be 100% improved and hopefully we're going to make strides towards that. <laughs> sure. No, no, that's great. So Megan, you know, one of the things, um, maybe not an academic medical centers, Michigan or, or Penn State, where I think, um, you know, somebody with advanced prostate cancer may very much transition out of perhaps the urology practice towards a medical oncology practice. But when you go to a lot of practices out in the community, large group practices in urology, there's a lot of advanced prostate cancer being managed within these urologic practices. So, you know, I, I'm wondering if you could take us through a little bit, um, you know, some of the, the therapies out there, but, but importantly also some of the notable side effects that if we're going to be giving these therapies in our infusion centers and these are going to be done by urologists, what should we be aware of as we give these drugs and therapies? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think probably the most commonly used therapies uh, are the, the, which are not so new anymore, but I was gonna say the new were abiraterone and enzalutamide. Um, not so new, they've been around almost a decade now, but uh, they are certainly the ones that are used the most commonly. Um, and then we've got the other orals like apalutamide, darolutamide, those are, I would, you know, the me too drugs for enzalutamide, so very similar. Um, similar side effects. So I guess I'll start with just the orals. So I, and it's a very common conversation I'll have with patients when we're, you know, we have to escalate therapy and add in an oral. The question is, all right, well, which one, abiraterone or enzalutamide? Um, and so we'll walk through side effects of each of them. And so generally my conversation goes, well, abiraterone tends to be better tolerated, but it's much more annoying to monitor. Um, and so that's kind of my first tagline and I'll start, you know, when it, abiraterone is a big pain to monitor, um, but it's so important. 
And as long as the patient has the ability to do that, I, I usually tend to um, be okay with that. So example, it's, it commonly can cause uh, hypertension. Um, it can affect uh, potassium, so patients can get hypokalemic. Uh, also can affect LFTs. Um, it's not as common to affect LFTs, the liver function test, as it does hypertension and hypokalemia, but, um, but it can happen, and when it can happen, it can be very severe. So what we generally recommend is uh, blood pressure monitoring regularly, and it's at the point where I'm basically asking the patient, do you have a blood pressure cuff at home? If they say no, I'm writing them a script for a blood pressure cuff. Um, so they can monitor their blood pressure regularly, call us or call their PCP, Arch a perfect, <laughs> perfect yeah. time to get the PCP involved. Um, and then, uh, you know, just keeping an eye on it. And then we're monitoring their potassium and their liver function tests every two weeks, um, mm-hmm. not forever. So I tell them this is not going to be forever, but just for the first few months, we're going to monitor these labs every couple of weeks. So you have to be close to a lab. It can be a lab close to home. You have to come to my office. Um, and we're just checking in every, you know, my, the nurse will monitor their labs every couple of weeks, make sure we're checking out. Um, and then after a few months, if things are going great, you know, I, I back off a little and then we're saying, all right, now we're good. You, you didn't get crazy hepatitis. Your potassium's holding up. Okay. We can back off a little on the frequency of monitoring. Um, so that's abiraterone. It, it, those are kind of the common ones that we monitor for. It can also rarely cause cardiovascular events where we're talking someone gets a CHF exacerbation, they're going into the emergency room, um, or they have like an exacerbation of their AFib or something like that. Um, It can happen, uh, but those are a lot less common. And those, again, perfect example of why the PCP should be involved, um, or at least aware that the patient's starting a medicine like this. Um, The last point about abiraterone is given along with prednisone. Um, it's a very low dose prednisone, but for people who have, you know, maybe brittle diabetes or they're like pre-diabetic, it's not uncommon to push them over the edge um, right into full-blown diabetes. Uh, so, so, and you'll, you'll pick up that glucose when you're getting your Q2 week comps. And so you'll know if their glucose is kind of going off the charts and send them to the primary care doctor. Sorry, Archana. Um, but then uh, now for enzalutamide, um, I think it's important to keep in mind, um, it, it's, and the reason I say it's a little, it's not as well tolerated, it's a lot easier to monitor. Um, we're not doing QT week um, LFTs, we're not doing, you know, daily blood pressure monitoring necessarily, but, um, but it, it is a little more tough to tolerate. So, in, when, in, and this is not for everybody, some people do great and they have no side effects, but about 50% of patients will get fatigued on enzalutamide, and I don't see that degree of fatigue on abiraterone. So, and fatigue could be mild. We're also talking fatigue that doesn't let people get out of bed. Um, And you're not doing people any favors um, by, you know, rendering them so exhausted that they can't do their daily activities and then you're further contributing to their sarcopenia and frailty. So, you know, you have to be very aware of how patients are tolerating these drugs, checking in regularly. And if they're not tolerating their enzalutamide and their spouse says, oh, yeah, you know, he hasn't gotten out of bed in three days, <laughs> you have to adjust the dose or, you know, bring them back in and readdress if that's the right medicine for them. Um, so keep in mind for and there is a black box warning. Also, one, a couple more things with enzalutamide. If you have a seizure disorder, which is not very common, usually avoid it with for people who have seizures, um, it's a very rare, rare side effect, but it could happen. 
Um, and then finally, something a little more common, um, you know, again, because these men are older, a lot of them have AFib or they're on uh, uh, oral anticoagulants for something, stroke, you know, reduce their stroke risk for AFib. Um, they enter a lot of our oral anticoagulants interact with enzalutamide. And so making sure the pharmacist is aware of any drug-drug interactions and if their DOAC um, interacts with the enzalutamide, you know, switching them to a different one um, that doesn't do that. So that's important. Um, those are kind of the biggest ones, apalutamide and darolutamide, you know, similar side effects to enzalutamide. Um, and then I don't think a lot of urologists are giving docetaxel. Um, so I don't know if I have to, if I should really go into the chemotherapy side effects, but um, those are kind of the most commonly used ones. Sure. So, so Archida, we, we talked a little bit earlier about um, this, this sort of importance of, of you know, communication and, and certainly communication amongst, you know, all members of the team, which you all, the three of you represent, maybe give us, the, you know, I don't want to say your, your top three list, but maybe give <laughs> us your top three of the, the key things that people should walk away after listening to, to this, knowing about, you know, some of the critical elements of this care coordination. Sure. Um, so I think the first one, I think we've kind of, you know, harped on this before, and I think we'll continue to harp on it now, but this idea of like sharing of this information. So I think sharing of records, you know, obviously if you're within the same EMR, then that's facilitated a bit much easier than not. But if you're not, then it becomes even more critical to make sure that your, your patient records, your encounters are being shared with the primary care physician. I think communication is incredibly important to help, help take care of this patient. And so I think that's first and foremost is making sure that that communication actually happens. Um, I think the second part to this, the care coordination, is really defining what are the roles and responsibilities of kind of like the team of providers that are taking care of the patient. And so what it, you know, um, kind of touched about touched on this a little bit before, but what am I responsible for as the PCP for this patient? Um, so are there things that you want me to follow? Are there just things that you want me to know? and, you know, kind of like an FYI, but then are, are there also things that you want me to follow? Um, and then being very explicit on what is it that you want me to follow? And then also, you know, it doesn't have to be incredibly detailed, but if there is an abnormality, then what do you want me to do about it? Do you want me to just touch touch base with you? Or are there things that you want me to take the first step of, of whatever that may be? Um, so I think really thinking about what are the roles and responsibilities clearly delineating it for the providers, and then actually also letting the patient know that, right? So um, having the patient know, sometimes it can be that, you know, I see a patient, um, but their specialist is 60 miles away or 90 miles away. So it doesn't necessarily make sense to keep going back to the specialist for something, but no, letting them know that, you know, you, your PCP can follow this. Um, and so having that clear communication between the providers and then between the providers and the patients. And then lastly, mm -hmm just about management goals, um, which I think primary care in general struggles with, not just with urology or cancer, but just kind of in general and how we manage patients with other uh, with other specialists. So, um, you know, we're happy to help the specialists, we're happy to help co-manage, but then also just being cognizant of the fact that are the expectations reasonable? We, we can do a lot for the patient, but we already do a lot for the patient that has nothing to do with their cancer. And so making sure that whatever the expectations are, are reasonable and is something that primary care certainly can do. Um, and then I think the last kind of aspect to this when it comes to management and even roles mm -hmm. and responsibilities is, is that really mm -hmm. it's a two-way street um, and it ought to be a two-way street. So 
um, oftentimes I think the struggle is what happens to that patient who is deteriorating or say now they have a new diagnosis of heart failure or now they're, you know, there's another cancer that's found. And so how am I or their ability to do ADLs or activities of daily living has deteriorated? So how can I relay that back to you as the provider, as a specialist to say, I think we need to pause and kind of have this conversation about does this plan still make sense? Um, and so to be able to facilitate that conversation, because I think oftentimes that doesn't happen. I certainly receive information from specialists, but it's rare that I'm actually providing information to the specialist. But I think making sure that that availability is there, I think is key. So so I'll, I'll maybe ask you all the crystal ball question, which is we've talked about a lot, you know, where things are now and, and what we could potentially do better now. But, but as we look at you know, more and more of these therapies being um, involved in care, more and more of them moving earlier into the, the disease paradigm and this whole concept of team-based care. Um, maybe I'll ask each of you, what, where do you see this going over the next decade? And maybe I'll start with you, Ted, uh, and then turn it over to the rest of the, the speakers. Thanks. So, you know, I think really working to balance quality and quantity of life uh, for men elderly men often with a lot of comorbidities who are faced with uh, treatment options and really understanding their preferences and the goals of care that Archana was talking about and really advocating for the most responsible use of ADT that we can, that we can um, you know, recommend and keeping it within the evidence base, expanding the evidence base um, for uh, um, you know, appropriate use of these drugs and really balancing that with the comorbidities that the patients are having. And so um, one area of focus that I um, think about a lot is overuse and addressing overuse of ADT. With, you're right, with the creep up further upstream um, and potentially some um, lead time bias effects, uh, you know, potentially that we're, we're actually, because they're not going to live a better quality of life on ADT or any of these advanced agents. And so just ensuring that they're going to have longer quality of, or longer quantity of life um, and, and really, uh, you know, understanding those trade-offs and, and collaborating with primary care, with our medical oncology folks, and really coming together with a treatment plan that is, you know, weighted with patient preferences and, and the big picture. Um, so that's where I think we need to, we need to build out. Megan? Ted, you sounded like a medical oncologist. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. No, I, I, we use that, I use that all the time. We improve, you know, have the best quality of life for as long as possible. That's kind of our tagline. Um, so yeah, and making sure your quality is preserved, not just making you live longer, um, is super important. So, but you know, to your question, I think I love this question because I think, um, at the beginning of the decade, like a decade ago, we were super excited with all these treatments coming out so fast. And we were like, this is great. We can extend life. And now we have, you know, in just a matter of a few years, we had um, five new treatments for castration-resistant prostate cancer, and everything was so great. Um, and each of the patients were on abiraterone or enzalutamide for maybe like six months at a time, six straight months. So yes, we were paying attention to these comorbid conditions, but it wasn't 
you know, in the front of your mind because they're only on it for six to eight months. And, you know, we're like, all right, well, they're also dying of their cancer. You know, they're at the end stages of their cancer. So it's not necessarily front and center. Um, but now that we're using these drugs, like you said, earlier and earlier, I mean, patients are on these drugs for years now. And, um, I mean, we're, we definitely have to pay attention to CHF and diabetes and coronary disease and hypertension and uh, fatigue. I mean, my goodness, if someone can't get out of bed on their enzalutamide and their, their doctor says they have to stand up for three years, I, they're going to die of frailty before they die of their prostate cancer. So, um, and they're probably not going to take it anyways. They're going to say they're taking it and they're not going to take it. <laughs> so, um, so, I mean, it's never been more important to be aware of comorbid conditions and work with primary care and just be aware of what we're doing to patients then at a time where we're committing people to these therapies for years um so i think it's it's really important uh, and i think it, it's going to come with a lot of opportunity to improve our relationships with primary care mm -hmm. I mean, this is a great opportunity to to we talk we had a long conversation about this a couple uh, recently with um, Archon and Ted, you know, there's a lot of opportunity here to, to fill in the Swiss cheese gaps <laughs> of your coordination. Yeah, and I just actually want to echo, I think these are all like things that are like music to a primary care physician's ears, but, um, you know, just really echoing the concept of like, I hope that this next decade really represents this idea of working as a team to take care of the patient. I think we've been so siloed, right? Like we all kind of just work within our circle and um, and view everything within through that lens. So hopefully with, with this next decade of change, we're able to all just work as a team and really capitalize on the expertise that each of us is able to bring when it comes to taking care of the patient to make sure that they really get the best care possible. Um, and I think one of the strengths of primary care always is to really look at the the whole patient. I mean, that's what we do. Um, and not define the patient by that one disease. Um, and so I think just echoing what Ted and Megan have said really about looking at the patient's advanced prostate cancer in light of everything else that they have, you know, um, and so to, is what we're recommending or is what we're going to put them on or whatever, does it make sense when you look at the whole patient? Does it make sense when it looks, you know, um, I think the idea of like, right, the best, what we wanna maximize is the quality of life for as long as possible. Um, and so are are we in line with that? And are we, what, what are, and are we recommending the treatment or the goals that are in line with that? So I think that's what my hope is. And I think this is like a great example of that actually happening in real time. So that's great. <laughs> And, you know, probably, and it's probably its own podcast in and of itself, but the reality is you all have highlighted, and we haven't really talked about it, but in a way we have that, you know, these, these drugs, uh, therapies, they cost a lot of money. And, and, you know, whether you want to use the term financial toxicity, uh, but, but you, you know, we've talked a lot about the impact on other disease states, and we know that a lot of these patients are on a lot of different therapies for other medical conditions. And now we know that these patients are on these drugs for earlier and earlier and, and, you know, there's a big part of me that wonders the cumulative financial toxicity if a patient is on these new agents for five years, 10 years, 15 years. And, and again, we, most of our discussion today was on comorbidities, but you, you do really say to yourself, at some point, there's got to be a team approach looking at, can the patient actually afford this stuff? And what are the implications of this, you know, even beyond maybe their comorbidities and their quality of life, but just financially? Um, 
Well, I really want to thank um, uh, Dr. Scaleras, Karim, and Radha Krishnamissa. I actually learned a great deal. I thought that was a, a fantastic program. Uh, I'm really glad, uh, Ted, that you you suggested uh, engaging um, uh, both Megan and Archana. I think it, it made the program really nice to hear a diverse perspective. Uh, and I really thank you all uh, for your time. And uh, certainly for our listeners, for any additional information, please visit uh, auanet.org slash university. And again, thank you to all three of you for your time today. I really enjoyed it. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you.